0: Well, I come with two thoughts this morning as I, as I come this morning, and one is that Pastor Steve has started preaching from an iPad. Um, I still have... I still got paper. Somebody after the first celebration came up and said, well, it was good enough for Paul. It's good enough for you. I should have printed it all on parchment then I'd have felt even better about myself. The other is, is, is uh, completely serious, is that these past two weeks, as, as Pastor Steve has been guiding us through the Beatitudes, I feel like they've been some, some of the most powerful times we've had together as a church, where God has just set in and is speaking really clearly to us. And so I come with an understanding that what I want to do is not get in the way So, I hope that prayer is on your heart to just um, that as we we hear what God has for us today, that He keep me out of the way. You know, we use team teaching here, and one of the reasons is we think it's more important to hear from Jesus than it is any specific person. And so, that's my prayer this morning. So we are going to continue in our study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. So if you have your Bible you can turn there Oh wait a minute. If you have your device, you can scroll to that. If anybody'd like to buy me an iPad, I mean I'm not against using one. I We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 8 through 12, and we're going to finish off our study of the Beatitudes, this first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some, a little bit of review and some new thoughts about the Beatitudes as we begin. Let me remind you that these are not commands to be something. They're not commands for us to be something. They are a declaration of truth about God's blessed people and where that blessedness leads them. In the Beatitudes, we see the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, come to life. This is the gospel, and here's how it's supposed to look. This is how it will look when it comes to fullness in your lives. Jesus is preaching against a false understanding of salvation. And that false understanding is that a person can be saved without being changed. That a person can be given eternal life, even if his attitudes and actions are not the attitudes and actions of Jesus. The overarching statement of the Beatitudes is get a new heart, become a new person. This is what the gospel does for you and to you. Jesus is lifting up a twofold challenge about salvation. One, here is who you will be if you follow Jesus. This is what your life will look like if you follow Jesus. And two, if you think you're following Jesus and this is not what your life looks like, it's time to seriously reevaluate. That's what the Beatitudes are about. This is what you're going to look like if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And if this isn't what you look like, time to internally reevaluate. So let's do a quick review of the first five of the Beatitudes that we've already looked at. The first one is in chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are totally dependent upon God. The second is in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who are broken over sin. Verse 5 Blessed are the meek, those who are completely surrendered to God, those who have power under control. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are spiritually hungry and desperate for God. Verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, those who are actively compassionate. And now today we look, beginning in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The aim of Jesus in this sermon, and even in the gospel, is not to reform the manners of society, but to change the hearts of sinners Individual purity will change society, but that is not its main goal. Pastor John Piper put it this way, the impotence of the state to deal with the inner collapse of our culture must be replaced by the power of purity. You see, if our culture, if our society is ever going to change, then it has to be changed one heart at a time. One life given to Jesus at a time. We're to be pure in heart. We are to be single. We should have a single-minded pursuit of God. A single-minded pursuit of God. The heart is what you are in the secrecy of your thoughts and feelings. That place where no one knows except God. Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Church in Chicago, said that character is who you are when no one's looking. The same can be said of the heart. This is where who you truly are will show up. What goes on in the secret Who we are and what we are in the deepest and most private recesses of our lives is what God cares about the most. You see, his desire is not that some bad habits be broken. He came to purify dirty hearts. Not just make better habits. And so, blessed, happy, fortunate are the pure in heart, those with a single-minded pursuit of God. But what does the world say? What does the kingdom of this world say? Well, blessed are those who say and do whatever it takes to succeed. Blessed are those who don't let this Jesus thing go too far. Don't get crazy about it. Goodness, you've got to succeed in this life. You've got to fight for it. so, yeah, keep that Jesus thing kind of there, but there are these other things you ought to be concerned about, too. These other things you ought to prioritize. What's the definition of this idea of being pure in heart, of being single-minded? It's a singular in focus, pure in heart, not double-minded, the Bible says. Not double-minded. Having nothing to do with falsehood. Free of deceitfulness. What's the opposite of double-minded? This is really easy for us math whizzes. Single-minded. Single-minded. Meaning, you have one will, not two. You know, it is not, I do one thing and people think I do another. Or I feel one thing, but I give the impression that I feel another. See, that's impurity of heart. Let me give you an example. A woman cannot be pure in heart and have both a husband and a boyfriend. That's double-minded. That is not single-minded. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, double-minded is a good Jesus word. The heart that is divided is impure. It is not set like north on God. That is the definition of the pure in heart. Single-minded, focused completely on Jesus. Who are the blessed? Those who are awestruck by God's glory. Awestruck by God's holiness and enthralled with his grace, who long to be in his presence. You see, God is most pleased with you when you are most enthralled with him. Anything that takes place of Jesus in your life is an idol. An idol is defined this way. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. You see, only in Jesus are we defined our significance and our security and our meaning for life and our value. And anything else we try to find those things in is an idol that takes the place of Jesus and makes us double-minded. But the believer, the one blessed by God, is the one who has one desire. Jesus. Examples would be David, who in Psalm 27 says that he seeks after the face of God. Jesus himself, in Hebrews 4, is described as One who was tempted just like we are yet without sin. Why? Because of a single focus on his Father's will. We see this in James as he writes in James 4 and pleads that we be people who submit to God and resist the devil. Why? Because God is a jealous God. A God jealous over the spirit, it says, that he made to dwell in us. What is God doing? I gave you my spirit and I am jealous that you keep following that spirit that is in you and nothing else. Well, how do we know if we have this need? Well, we probably already do without me even saying anything. But we have an unchanged heart toward God. You have a public persona that doesn't match the private you. A heart divided between the world and God. How do we repent? We come to God and we say, I desire Jesus only. No deception, no double-mindedness, not divided allegiance. Only Jesus. But that's not always easy, is it? Because see, God is trying to help us realize we have this pure heart. He's already given it to us, right? This is a description of a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower today, this pure heart is already in you. You say, well, what's going on then? Well, you're not living in the truth of this pure heart. And so God's trying to to change that heart and get you to see who you really are. And it is a painful, painful process. I was talking with a man in our church just recently while I was writing this. While I was studying this. And the picture that I believe in that time of talking together was this. And it's the picture, this, this very simple picture of an oil change. Anybody ever done one of those? I've watched them. <laughs> I've paid for them. But I know how they work. See, what's the point of an oil change? What are you getting rid of? Dirty oil. And that oil starts to drain out. But what happens at the very end of draining oil? What do you start getting? Sludge, doesn't drain quite as quickly, it's kind of gritty, got to work a little harder at getting that out. You know, doesn't that happen to us? God's busy draining us of ourselves so that we're focused completely on Him. Here's the good part about sludge, it's at the end of the process. You see, when it starts getting tough and it starts getting hard, and you're thinking, God, what in the world are you doing? God says, I'm down to the sludge. We're scraping away at the last of it. That pure heart, totally focused on God, a few scrapes away, but they hurt. Doesn't just drain, doesn't drain easy, comes hard. What's the blessing? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Intimacy with God now and for eternity is is the blessing to those who are pure in heart. They shall see God. What's that mean? Well, a few things, I think. Being admitted into his presence. The word here is not see him from a distance. If you call a doctor and you say, I need to see the doctor... The nurse does not say, well, if you'll come to the west parking lot and look to the third floor, the doctor will stand in the window and give you a hearty wave and then, of course, send you a bill for $85. But that's not the word here. This is the word for seeing up close and personal. You want to meet the doctor, correct? You're you're calling not to wave at the doctor. I want to see the doctor. In other words, I want... I want to be in the same room with him. That's the word here. Seeing God up close and personal. It also means to be comforted by his grace. David cried out, cries out to God in the Psalms, Hide not your face from me. It has the same meaning of be gracious to me. David comes and he pleads with God because he wants to seek the face of God because in that seeing God there is help and there is comfort and peace experiencing God's glory face to face. That's what it means to see God. Up close, in his face, Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. That's who'll see God. Now maybe you're ahead of me and you say, "No, wait a minute, though." But none of us is pure, not in and of ourselves. Maybe like Psalm uh, Proverbs ten nine, you say, "Who can I? Who can say that I'm pure from sin?" With the disciples, maybe today you realize, "Who then can be saved?" Here's the answer in Matthew nineteen twenty six. Jesus says, "With men it is impossible." But with God, all things are possible. You see, God creates purity for us and within us so that we can pursue pursue purity. He does it in us, just like in our salvation. He gives us all these things. He's already put it in us. He's making us pure so that we have a greater desire to pursue purity. Like David, we cry out to God, create in me a pure heart, O God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That person who is overcoming the barriers between God and man and each other. The peacemaker who is pushing past the walls that divide us. Who is pushing past resentment and hurt and bitterness is pushing past sin between man and God and man and each other. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. We become sons and daughters of God by trusting in Christ for our righteousness and hope. And this God who does this in us is a peace-loving and a peacemaking God. You, don't, you realize that the entire history of the gospel is God's strategy to bring a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself. That's the strategy of the gospel, to bring a lasting peace between we as rebels and himself and then between us and others. And so what Jesus is saying is that people who have become sons and daughters of God have the character of their heavenly father. God's children are peacemakers because our Father is a peacemaker. It is is to be in our character that we take on the Father's character of being a peacemaker. But the world says something very different. It tries at peace, but rarely achieves it. See, the world says if someone hurts you, get good and mad and make sure your enemies know you have something against them and For sure, hold on to those grudges because those are power. Look at how this idea of being a peacemaker is so different from how God works. Matthew 5, verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So later in this same chapter, after these Beatitudes, Jesus continues teaching. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, recognize this phrase, sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There it is again, sons and daughters of the Father. This is how you do it. Look how it goes even a step further. It says to pray for those who persecute you. And we're going to talk more about those people in a few minutes. What's the prayer? The prayer that we are to be praying is that both of you will do God's will. Essentially, we are praying for conversion of the non-Christ follower who's our enemy. And for the sanctification of growth and holiness for the Christ follower who we are in a struggling relationship with. The basis of this peace simply goes back to what God does in us in salvation. He makes us pure. And that pure, changed heart brings about peace. You see, these beatitudes are building on each other. And even these last two, if you have a pure heart, you're going to be a peacemaker. Because you're you're peacemaking out of that pure heart. That single-minded devotion to the Father who is a peacemaker. Let's hone in on this definition just a little more. It is loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute you. No animosity, ignoring, or avoidance of conflict. Don't we? most of us like to avoid conflict? In personality tests, it's actually in there. Doesn't like conflict. I worry about the people who say, loves conflict. (laughs) I know a few of you. You love conflict. But most of us don't. Probably what Jesus thinks about, the, about peacemaking is that it's all the acts of love by which we try to overcome strife and blocks between us and other people. That's peacemaking. In Matthew 5, we see an example. Jesus says later in this chapter, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? In other words, if there's an issue in one of your relationships or if there's someone who's opposing you, don't feed a grudge. Don't allow animosity to build by ignoring and avoiding that person. Now, none of us have ever done this. You know, it's easy to think I'll just stay away. If if I just avoid them, the problem will cease. Is this true? I wasn't convinced, but the answer is no. You see, this attitude of running away from the conflict is not an impulse of the spirit of a peacemaking God. Because what did our peacemaking God do? He came to us to resolve the conflict between himself and us. He ran to us, praise God. I have been struck this last week by those in Boston who we've seen run toward the problem and toward the danger rather than away from it. You see, that's the idea here. It's exactly the idea. Run toward the need, not away from it. Run into the conflict and be a peacemaker. Paul says in Galatians 4, Since we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, we see this statement, All who are led by the Spirit, Of God are sons of God. So we have this idea. We are sons and daughters of God because we are led by the Spirit. It's in us. So being led by the Spirit includes bearing the fruit of the Spirit, right? God's given us his Spirit. The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit's producing this fruit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Peace. See, it flows right from the Father. And his gift of the Spirit to us. Who are the blessed? Those who long and work for unity in Christ. Not that we're all the same, not that we need to be clones, but there's a unity in Christ. Here's a recent thought that I've been pondering, and I've been talking with others and running past them these last few weeks. As we read Genesis 1 through 3, I believe we discover God's original intent for us. Now think about this, follow me. Adam and Eve were unashamed. They walked with God, it says in the garden. Completely vulnerable, completely open, no shame, in perfect relationship and perfect community, in complete peace. Wasn't that God's original intent? But then the fall. Sin came in and changed all of it. And now we struggle to live this way. Strife touches our relationships. We now start hiding from God and keeping ourselves away from others sometimes out of shame, out of an inability to live in an open and honest peace. You see what God wants? I believe God wants to restore his original intent. And in this beatitude we are told, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Because they are being restored to God's original intent. Peace with God and with others. What do you say we just live in a way that gets us there? Instead of all this confounded strife and disunity that we seek to build back the relationships that are broken allowing the peacemaker god to work through us as peacemakers. We see Jesus as an example of this. In Colossians 1:20, Paul describes Jesus as a man who came to reconcile all things to himself. We see Paul in Romans 12 admonishing us to live peaceably with everyone. Well, how do we know if we have this need? Well, I think we have a lack of spirit leading. We don't sense God leading us. We don't sense the spirit working through us and speaking to us. We hold grudges. There's a lack of grace in us. We're unable to pray for our enemies. We hold in animosity. There's a lack of reconciliation in our life. I don't think it's really hard for us to see that in ourselves if it's there. Here's the plain and simple truth. If we are not peacemakers, we do not have the Spirit of God. So how do we repent? We go to God and we say, I long for peace. I long to work for peace, to sacrifice for peace as I live in the fullness of the peace that God has given me. And then there's that blessing, to be called the sons of God, inheritors of eternal life in the kingdom. This is not Jesus telling us how to become sons and daughters of God. He is simply saying, sons of God are in fact peacemakers. Jesus is saying, blessed are you peacemakers who pray for your enemies. And greet your opponents with love and sacrifice, just like Jesus did as he reconciled man to himself. You, you are the ones that are going to inherit eternal life in the kingdom. Now, quick question. What about times when your stand for righteousness out of a pure heart is causing division? Should a Christian ever compromise truth in order to achieve peace? Well, let me say this. Not all peacemakers are peace achievers. Not all peacemakers are peace achievers. This is due to the fact that the truth about the gospel must be lived out. And your life of obedience and your message of love can elicit both hostility from some and affirmation from others. Now in a moment, we're going to look at the blessing, the blessing of persecution. But here's the basic thought as we put these three Beatitudes, two we've talked about, one we haven't yet together. Righteousness must not be compromised in order to make peace with your persecutors. See, first we're to be pure in heart. Single-mindedly devoted to God. What were, we, what were we told earlier in one of the... That we'd be hunger, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We cannot let down righteousness for the sake of peace with our persecutors. Now, just because you say you're being persecuted doesn't mean you are being persecuted for righteousness. There are a lot of people on Dr. Phil who say they're being persecuted. My daughters always say in these bets, "Well, maybe you're a terrible mother." Maybe you're obnoxious. Maybe you're rude. The people at work, they're always picking on me. Well, maybe you're lazy. That's not the persecution being talked about here. This is persecution for righteousness, for being that peacemaker in your workplace, for being that person single-mindedly devoted to God, for being that person who's showing mercy, who mourns over sin, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, that's where the persecution comes from. And then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are wrongly treated because of their righteous life. Now notice, I did not say those who are being treated badly for their self-righteous life. Those who are wrongly treated because of their righteous life. There are two ways we can look at this idea of persecution. One is from a global perspective. There is persecution of the church and God's people all over the world. So we see, along with Paul, as he writes... That he was correct when he wrote, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, he saw conflict and tension between the gospel message and the Christian way of life versus the mindset of the world with its false gods and its sinful lifestyle. You see, that conflict is inevitable. And it's going to come to a head. And we see that globally around the world. But don't we as Westerners struggle (laughs) wondering if this is true today in our seemingly Christianized culture? Well, this is my opinion and I could be wrong, but I say this. It is possible and probable that sooner or later a deeply God-centered Christian will be mistreated for the things that he or she believes and the life that he or she lives. I would also say, oh may it be that our lives and our message are such that the world starts to attack. That we as the church look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. Because see, the kingdom of this world is different. The kingdom of this world says suffering is always bad. Avoid it at all costs, even if it means weakening your convictions. We seem to strive to avoid pain at all costs. Especially if all it takes to stop it is to back down from our identity in Christ and take a hold of some less controversial way of life. Well, if I just maybe I'm going too far here. Remember the first? Don't get too into this Jesus thing. Don't be too focused on Jesus because you need to come over here and you need to focus on this a little while. Kind of get you can get all caught up in your job too, just like everybody else. That'll be all right. We can't avoid it. You see, by definition, this persecution is conflict, rejection, and ultimately even death because of our stand for Christ. The persecution described here, it says, is because of righteousness. See, we could read verse 10 this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Look at the structure of these beatitudes and it helps us understand this a little more. There are two groups of four. And each group ends with a reference to righteousness. The first group ends at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the second group ends at verse 10... With blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. See, what's happening here is the first three Beatitudes are descriptions of a holy internal desire for filling. There's an emptiness there. Fill me, God. Look at what they are. Poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are meek. There's a cry to God in these because of emptiness. This emptiness then leads to spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness. Empty me of myself, I become hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And then the next three Beatitudes are the opposite. They're descriptions of fullness. The hunger, then, for righteousness is being fed and fulfilled by mercy and a pure heart and the power to make peace. And the righteousness that is longed for and hungered for in verse 6 is given in the form of mercy and purity And peacemaking. And what's the result? Persecution because of righteousness. See, our hunger and thirst after righteousness to its full end is persecution for that righteousness that we have hungered for. Who are the blessed here? Those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, the sake of gospel truth. The same thought is in verse 11. It says, we suffer on, he says, you're accused falsely, you're reviled, you're persecuted on my account. We suffer because of Jesus. On account of him. Because of righteousness and because of Jesus, we will be persecuted Remember, this righteousness isn't our own either, any more than the purity is. It too, like every good gift, comes from Jesus. He's placed within us this righteousness. He is the one who gives, this, gives us a distinct character that attracts the attention of the unrighteous. Well, why is this persecution coming? Don't all these things seem good? I mean, this se- I want to know people who are like this, don't you? Why would anybody persecute these qualities? They don't really seem that offensive. Well, we could study this for hours, but let me just say this. Self-justification causes us to lash out, to prove ourselves, to protect our own sinful living, to fight for our rights to live as we want. Jesus said in Luke 16 that we cannot serve two masters. Remember, we can't be double-minded nor double-mastered. He says in that same passage, you are those, those of you who are trying to do this, serve two masters, you are those who justify yourselves before men. See, everything that God tells us through the gospel causes one of two responses. There are only two. Persecution or conversion. Men and women will be convicted by righteousness, right? And they will surrender to Jesus in conversion or they will stand for their right to live the way they want and mistreat Christians who remind them because of the way they lead their lives of their own distance from God you see this persecution is coming when we live a life that just reminds those around us I am far from God and I want to be my own God now this may not come immediately but at some point in some way it will come maybe it's not coming because our distinctions as believers aren't showing. Maybe there's just not enough to be gained from persecution yet, and so we've not fully felt it deeply. There's nothing really gained at this point maybe in our culture. Persecution or conversion. Those are the two responses to lives of righteousness. We see this in the prophets and the Old Testament believers that are brought up in the next couple verses. Hebrews 11, that we'll look at in a moment, reminds us of these. We see it in Jesus, who is described in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant who came to give his life so that we could gain his righteousness. We know that we need this because we're taking and making decisions not to stand for truth. We desire a pain-free life. We're struggling to trust God in all things. See, we want the easy way. We're forgetting the the complete sacrifice of Jesus for the gospel. But God calls us to repentance. When we come and we say, I choose to live my life as an example of Christ and to stand for righteousness in all circumstances. And as we do that, there is a blessing Yes, a blessing. Afflictions for Jesus' sake bring eternal glory. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are saved, justified believers, and as we live in righteousness and even suffer for it, our hope is that we have eternal glory promised in the presence of Jesus. See, we look past the momentary to the eternal, The end that Jesus is pointing to here is indeed death. Matthew 24, Jesus says, We will be delivered to tribulation. We will be hated by all nations for the sake of the name of Christ. But here he's saying, we're fortunate. We're fortunate, we are blessed, we are happy as the persecuted. Look at this quickly. Consider Jesus' shocking counsel. Listen to these last two verses, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, Rejoice and be glad. What? You're being persecuted rejoice and be glad now jesus is not doing this he's not this is not a silly kind of ignore the facts and smile your way through kind of way this isn't that person who goes i know it's bad but you know you ever have that god God, god's in control you're not even sure they're convinced about it it's just something they read on some plaque smile jesus loves you i don't feel like smiling that's not what Jesus is talking about here. See, Jesus is saying rejoice and be glad out of the knowledge that there is no doubt about the future and the believer's reward in heaven. He says, you, don't, you can't even imagine what I got waiting for you. He says to keep your heart in heaven. Stay focused with our heart in heaven. Realize that the more our faith is tested through suffering, the greater our reward You know, we have to live as Paul challenged us in 2 Corinthians to see all this. Here's how Paul describes this very thing. Slight, momentary afflictions. See, in light of eternity, where there is a great reward coming, these are slight, momentary afflictions. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus says, why? I know what I'm I know what I'm going to go create for you. I know what I'm building. I know where this is all going. And then we are told to follow those who gave their all for Christ. We gain our strength from remembering those who suffered for Jesus before us. Hebrews 11 tells us of those who suffered mocking and scourging. Those who were chained and imprisoned, those who were stoned, sawn in two, chopped to pieces by swords. Those who, because of their righteousness, were destitute, fighting just to be clothed. Think of those who, through the thousands of years since Jesus' death for the sake of the gospel, endured persecution Martyrs who it was said would kiss the stakes on which they were burned. Those who were beaten mercilessly and t- who yet told their persecutors, You have struck me with roses. One great saint said that persecution was a precious season of grace. Consider Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this as he was led to the gallows in 1945. This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. Listen to the writer of the Revelation who cries to us today, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We're to remember those who have gone before us. We're to remember Jesus. See, how can he say this? How can Jesus say, this is who you are. Rejoice in your persecution as pure-hearted peacemakers. Well, because he's our example. Philippians 2.9 says, Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We look to Jesus. Jesus. And periodically we come to the table of Christ. Why? Why do we celebrate His Last Supper? Well, one reason I want us to take hold of today is to be reminded and be convicted and be propelled forward in obedience to His example. We remember and celebrate a man full of righteousness who died for our sinfulness So that we could live in his righteousness. Let me remind you again of this one we celebrate. A man full of righteousness. Who died for our sinfulness. So that we could live in his righteousness. The pure peacemaker. Who suffered persecution for you and for me. We are told that as we take of this table... We should examine ourselves, and so I would ask you these questions. Are you pure in heart? Are you living a single-minded pursuit of God? If not, would you humble yourself? Come to these altars or to a prayer partner who can pray with you for realignment of your heart. Are you committed to overcoming the things that become between you and others? Are you committed to overcoming those barriers between you and others? Between you and God? Would you come today asking God for strength to be a peacemaker? Maybe you need to go to the lobby with your cell phone and turn it back on and call someone and say, I need to talk to you today. There is some peacemaking to be done. Maybe you need to go to somebody else in this room and ask for forgiveness. Or better yet, offer it without it being asked for. Maybe today, as Pastor Steve said last weekend, maybe maybe I'm the one you need to forgive. Could it be that I've sinned against you and it's somehow unresolved? You know, I've been here 27 years. Probably uh, sinned against somebody. And it's unresolved. Maybe I don't even know about it. Would you come today? Let's let's just start over as peacemakers. I'm going to be right up here if that's you. Are you living your life like Jesus? So that if persecution takes place, you are confident that you'd give your life for Christ. Maybe in this place you'd come to this altar... Or to a prayer partner and just lay your life on the line for the one who put his life on the cross for you. We're going to take time. We have about 20 minutes. Let's take this time. Let's take our time. We say this all the time. No rush. All these folks with these elements will be here. Take our time. Coming to the bread and the cup. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit. Let's examine ourselves. Let's come and pray. Let's let's come to prayer partners. Let's resolve issues. Let's come as pure in heart, peacemakers, ready to endure persecution for the sake of the one who came and was persecuted. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit as He speaks. As we remember Jesus, our pure, persecuted peacemaker father we pause and we would ask with David that you search our heart God may we respond to you when you speak let us obey cause us to obey. God help us to know. That we are pure. Because of you. That we are peacemakers because of you. And that we are. We desire and long for the day. When we are persecuted because of you. Come and set in on this place. In Christ's name. There are folks with the elements all through the building. The one on the far left up against the wall is all gluten free. So, if that helps you out, that's where you want to go. Let's go before the Lord.